across campus, online, and on 12:51 a.m. This, this, this is your student radio station. A very good afternoon, and welcome to the Alternative View here on Royal 12:51 a.m. Whether you are listening to us live or you're listening to us on any of our catch-up streaming services on Mixcloud, on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all the others that we are on, it's a pleasure to have you listening to us this afternoon. Um, it's been quite a crazy week in the world, it's fair to say. Since we've been on last week, the EU have erupted into a massive row over vaccines with AstraZeneca, over a vaccine they only approved last week and some within the EU have criticised, yet they were erupting into a massive row about not being able to get supplies. We'll be talking about that more in depth later. Who's to blame? And has this vindicated Brexit? Yes, we're going to be touching Brexit again. But for some people right now, myself included, I feel it's a slightly lighter topic compared to recent news. So I don't mind too much. We'll also be looking at misinformation. There's been a lot of that um, surrounding um, the COVID pandemic and um, anti-vax misinformation as well. So we're talking a bit about that, but also how this links to some of the other misinformation that has been going around in recent years, particularly regarding elections. We'll be talking as well about some of the latest news from campus. Obviously, it's all student vote this week. So I'll quickly mention, of course, all the motions later on the show. Plus, talk a bit about tuition fees and accommodation fees and rent strikes. Should students get reduced fees this year? There's been talk of a possible um, vice chancellor, 15 vice chancellors signed a letter yesterday saying that there should be a relaxation of interest accrued throughout the pandemic. I'd like to hear my panel's thought on this. We'll also be talking about Keir Starmer. He's come under fire recently for not quite fulfilling his duties as leader of the opposition. We'll be seeing if he is exactly being the leader of the opposition, fulfilling his role in opposition. I've said opposition quite a lot there, but yeah, that's the one thing Keir Starmer's been told he's not been doing a lot of recently. So we'll be seeing just if he has. And finally, of course, um, big developments in the UK-China relations in the last week with the British National Overseas Passport Holders Visa Scheme coming into effect with the eligibility now of 3 million Hong Kongers for British citizenship. We'll be talking about the impact of that. But of course, we do have a fantastic panel to talk through all of the brilliant stuff that we have planned today. So firstly, I'd like to welcome back one of the regulars on this show. It is Odysseus Digvasanis. Hi, Cam. Very good to be back. No, it is fantastic to have you back as well. Of course, you were here last week. Um, how, how's your week been? Well, the week's been uh, pretty, pretty normal, getting back into the hang of uh, studies again, uh, catching up on lectures. Um, and in Greece, where I am, they just announced new restrictions on shopping again. So that means that shops are closed and you can only go by appointment. So things are just moving very, very slowly where I am. I think we would like to be sympathetic here in the UK, but given we've been <laughs> under those restrictions after the last month, you're getting a taste of our medicine now. Now, um, you, I believe, are quite busy this weekend. You've got something slightly big planned. Uh, yes, I'm chairing a panel at the inaugural Warwick Law Summit on the 6th of February, where I'll be talking about the where the line is between law and politics and how that has perhaps shifted uh, during the pandemic. I'll be talking to the former Secretary of State of Education, uh, Baroness Nikki Morgan, uh, a MEP from Denmark, uh, Karen Melchior, and a QC from London, Tom Hickman QC, about where the line between law and politics is. And it's 
something that I'm really looking forward to discussing. And hopefully uh, everyone listening has got a ticket for the event because it's not just me. We have fantastic keynote speakers and I can't wait, honestly. Well, I'm sure it will be fantastic. Uh, where do we get these tickets, by the way? Uh, the Warwick Law Summit webpage should have them on the on the, the, the at the top. There's a banner, uh, but generally you can find the link pretty easily um, on the Warwick Law Summit social pages on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, even. So go for it. Okay, brilliant. It's great to have you on today, Odysseus. And now, um, as well as Odysseus, I'm pleased to say we are joined by another regular here on our show. It's Johnny Hoyle. Hi, Cam. It's great to have you back, Johnny. Um, how have you been doing? You, I believe you were last on on our live stream in the first week of term. How's things been since? Well, I, you know, I wish I could say it's been a roller coaster, but unfortunately it's been pretty mellow. But, uh, you know, as, as you said, it's good to get back in the habit of, of working, doing readings, you know, lectures, seminars. So I uh, kept myself busy, really. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really weird time at the moment just trying to get a song because I'm finding that I'll try and get up in the morning and I always like to have that sort of motivation. I'm just really struggling to find the motivation. Of course, I have my radio shows and all that as my nice little break, but I'm just missing me having that, you know, getting up in the morning, having a night out in the evening that you know you want to go to and you don't want to stress out, you know, with work that you haven't done. So, you mm. know, really motivating yourself to get that done during the day. I'm, I'm, I just haven't had that feeling. I don't think that's a good thing. I mean, how, how are you coping with it all? Well, you know, truth be told, I've been reading a lot, really. And um, I've been a big fan of reading. And it's nice to, you know, escape into, you know, better times in some cases and just to get out of everything. Uh, I've just been reading uh, George Orwell's 1984. And I could tell you, Cam, it could be a lot worse, mate. It could be a lot, <laughs> lot worse. So I, I've, I have read that book and I can totally agree with you. Although I feel for a politics student, 1984 is a rather apt read, I must say. <laughs> But of course, it's great to have you back, Johnny. And um, again, a lot for us to um, talk about on the shows you mentioned earlier. But as we said, of course, a lot has happened within the last week. And of course, it wouldn't be the alternative view without me customarily just jamming my way through the news in 60 seconds in. However, what's, what's the word? What's the word? Lucid. <laughs> lucid. However lucid I make it sound. Here we go. Here is the news in 60 seconds in three two one so coronavirus cases have fallen sharply in recent weeks it's 16,840 yesterday which means that's the lowest figure since tonight's december sadly deaths are still high 1,449 although we expect these to come down within the next couple of weeks of course sadly one of these recent deaths was um captain sir tom moore who sadly died on tuesday at the age of 100 of course after raising 33 million pounds last year for the nhs of course our thoughts and prayers are with his family right now. Uh, meanwhile, fears over new variants, including the possibility of the South African variant being here in the UK. There's now surge testing going on in eight areas across the UK. But more hope with vaccines. Ten million people have now received um, vaccinations, including um, nearly half a million second doses. Um, we have new vaccines coming as well. Sputnik five, the Russian vaccine, at 92 percent effective. Novavax, 89 percent effective. Johnson Johnson, we believe a similar figure around there as well. That's the one shot vaccine that could be particularly useful and of course another big news over the last week GameStop has completely done the stock market and that is the real basic news in 60 seconds I was going to say about GameStop I mean that's just a fascinating story that it just completely surprised hedge market investors in terms of just its ability to um the fact that 
you know, people betting against GameStop. And then this one Reddit subgroup just literally took it to astronomically high share levels. I would have covered it, except I don't know about the stock market. And I feel I would have just complete, done, completely done raw disservice by trying to mangle my way through it. But there we go. Um, as we said, a lot going on in the last week. And I just want to talk to my guests about a couple of these stories. So um, Captain Sir Tom Moore, as we said, obviously a national hero within the UK, sadly died um, on Tuesday. Of course, raised £33 million and very much raised the spirits of the nation at one of its most difficult times last April. Um, Johnny, obviously very sad news about um, Captain Sir Tom Moore's death. Yeah, very, very sad, really, because, you know, we, we Brits, we love creating national treasures, don't we? And, uh, you know, I thought Dame Barbara, uh, Barbara Windsor was, you know, too much to lose. But with Sir Tom as well, it's, it is upsetting. But, you know, what I love to think about is there's so many stories like Tom, so many people in this great country who uh, took up charitable causes during the first lockdown. And even and in continuing today. So, you know, we lose one. We must, you know, pay our respects. But there are many more out there. And that's what makes this country so great. No, exactly. I think we can be proud of just how many people have really taken up charity work throughout the pandemic to really raise money for those who are struggling, not just obviously because of coronavirus, but the effects of things like lockdowns as well. And a lot of people have really taken up effort, whether that's just in the NHS, but also um, supplying food to children and families throughout the pandemic. A lot of work has been going on. Um, Odysseus, obviously, Captain Sir Tom Moore is not someone who is well known without outside of the UK. But what would you say, sort of seeing the reaction about his death? I mean, has there sort of been anything similar to that in Greece? Has there sort of been anyone like him who's really captured the attention of uh, the Greek people? I, I mean, I, I don't think so in Greece. I don't think we've had uh, that sort of spirit for making uh, national treasures, as uh, Jonathan points out. And I am quite saddened by his death. I saw him as someone who was really inspiring, especially at his age, to raise that much money uh, in such a humble way, just by walking across his garden uh, to really make an impact. So it's a sad day for Britain. It's a sad day uh, for the world, really. No, absolutely. And of course, as I said earlier, my thoughts and prayers are with his family at this moment in time. One other story that caught the news um, throughout last week. And again, we really don't know a lot in terms of what's happened in the aftermath of um, the events in Myanmar um, over the on Sunday night, which saw the military come in and arrest Aung San Suu Kyi and the president as well. And the military have now come in and effectively now done what the United States has called a coup d'etat. And quite an interesting um, reaction so far. Of course, Myanmar um, sort of cut communications. The internet went down on Sunday night. Then we come up on Monday with this new government. Of course, the election took place um, last November, which was won by the National League for Democracy, which is Aung San Suu Kyi's party, quite resoundingly, but the military kind of made unfounded claims of voter fraud. And as a result of that, that was their justification for the coup. It's been condemned by um, many countries, including the UK, the United States and the European Union. Interestingly, China, um, in their um, official state TV reports, have said that Myanmar have undergone a change of government or a change of cabinet rather than a coup d'etat. Um, Odysseus, what's your first reaction to the events in Myanmar? I think it's quite tragic to see global politics sort of go backwards in this way. This is a typical coup, military coup, the types of which we would think belonged uh, in the previous century. But we kind of see this revival and it's quite sad. 
So, Johnny, we can't um, obviously talk about uh, Myanmar without talking about, obviously, the plight of the Rohingya Muslims in the last few years that has really come from um, mm. the army in Myanmar and really the persecution in many cases, genocide that's been alleged there. I mean, what do you think, obviously, related to this? Because a lot of people have looked at Aung San Suu Kyi's kind of legacy as very much tainted by this. Do you think the coup will change anything with perhaps both the image of Aung San Suu Kyi, but also the plight, more importantly, of the Rohingya Muslims? Well, what I often say is, you know, there, there's so many double standards uh, in, in the world at the moment. And I think actually, I think the, the former leader of uh, Myanmar actually defended that uh, the plight of the Rohingya, though defended the, the you know the military actions in in so-called alleged genocide. So you know I, I don't think she can always be seen as this uh, heroic, uh, democratically elected figure who is you know freedom fighter. Considering uh, the actions over the last few years of the Rohingya, uh, I think when we look at you know really condemning this coup d'état, it's a horrific act. But, you know, we're still willing to work with other nations of the world which don't have civil liberties, don't have democracy, don't have freedom. You know, why is that weird for China to not condemn it? Well, in China, they don't have democracy. So actually, in some cases, it's dangerous to have democratic neighbours. So I'm not surprised at all by uh, the you know declaration of the Chinese. Well, indeed, I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see, as I said, this is only out for two days since we record the show, since it goes on there. So we're very much still learning about what's going on there. And if we know any more over the next week, I'm sure we'll cover this again in next week's show. But that has been the news in the last week. We'll be back talking about one story that I didn't mention in the little news and 60 seconds break earlier. It is the row between the EU and AstraZeneca over vaccines and how the UK has ended up getting caught in this. But first, this. Music. Welcome back to another week of Psychedemics. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Vinny Show. You are listening to Rockstar. I'm backstage at Casper. I just think the style that Marvel has made has just put them, like, way above. Speech. You must get to the maths and stats building using three different modes of transport. Oh, my God. There's a trolley. <laughs> really all about like educating networking and sharing our stories i think the su has a really uh, important role in engaging students with politics news good evening and welcome to the big decision ben and larissa tied this is your student radio station this is raw 1251 am your student radio station on 1251 AM. This is your role. Now, the one very big story has kind of dominated a lot of the last week. Um, it's the row between the EU and AstraZeneca over vaccine so just a bit um to talk about this because we sort of started talking about it on last week's show i remember um asking Justice and rob about this last week and this was the point where there was a row that was erupting between the eu and astrazeneca over the production of vaccines astrazeneca had told the eu that they would be unable to satisfy i believe up to about 75 percent of the vaccines that they had put in place and ordered um due to issues with production in their plants in belgium and the netherlands now there was this big row that erupted between the EU and AstraZeneca 
over just how much AstraZeneca had to fulfill that contract. AstraZeneca um, came out last week and said that they don't have that the contract didn't put out an obligation, only just a best efforts intended clause. And by that, it means that if they can't do it, they can't fulfill the supply to the EU. The EU denied it and said there was an obligation to do so. Now, it erupted really on Friday when the EU did two things. Firstly, they enacted a vaccine export um, mandate across the EU, which meant that any vaccines leaving it would have to now be authorised um, by the Commission. And secondly, on Friday now, arguably the most audacious move of them all was to um, enact Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol, a move that effectively put up a hard border between Northern and Southern Ireland and in that effectively undermined uh, the withdrawal agreement and the key point that the EU had emphasised over the last four years to try and avoid a hard border in Ireland throughout the Brexit negotiations. That effectively undermined by the EU's actions on last Friday night. Now, since then, the EU have backed down and there has been some warmer words being exchanged between, between the UK and the EU where there has been a lot, it's fair to say a lot of, discussion on sort of who should be able to export whose vaccines. A lot of people in the EU, considering whether there are AstraZeneca plants in the UK, whether the UK should be supplying some of their vaccines across to the EU. I mean, there's a lot really to unpack here. So I guess let's start off with the first question. Now, we saw the AstraZeneca contract get published by the EU last Friday. and um, We haven't seen the one that we ha- that they have with the UK. But One of the things that has been commonly said is that the UK's contract was signed three months earlier. They managed to iron out a lot of the issues with regulation. And so they've got a lot more clarity. And it means that there's been a much faster rollout and a lot less of delays have really impacted the EU. Johnny, what do you what do you say? to that? I mean, who's to blame in this matter? Is it the EU? Is it AstraZeneca? Do other parties have a role to blame in this? Well, you know, let's cut to the chase. It's. um... The UK government signed far earlier, and as Matt Hancock said at the uh, one of the daily press briefings, I think it was on Monday, uh, he made it very clear their mentality was no regrets, and no matter what the cost was, they were going to get that contract signed. Whereas the European Union left it, I think three months later is the the number cited, um, and really, you know, uh, uh, you know, as as a as I am a great Brexiteer, of course, I would say it's the European Union's fault. But I think this is just very clearly displayed how, um, you know, the the hypocrisy is one word I'd say, and the dogmatic nature of the European Union. But um, <laughs> now, it is a tricky one, because I often think what would happen if the shoe was on the other foot? And you you would like to think that probably the UK government would probably be complaining if this was the, uh, the shoes on the other foot. But fortunately, that hasn't happened. And it's the European Union with the egg on their face at the moment. Well, we'll come back to specifically the perhaps the Brexit part of this in a bit. But Odysseus, the EU have faced a lot of criticism from many countries within it. Um, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, all of these countries have said previously that they had contracts ready to be signed with AstraZeneca and other vaccine supplies but the EU said that they needed to take charge of negotiations and that because of that they led to a situation where Marcus Soda um, the leader in Bavaria came out and said we're in a situation now where we have too few vaccines and they're not being delivered 
effectively enough, especially when you consider the situation in the UK. Um, what do you make of this? Well, I think, you know, you make an excellent point there. Um, the EU, you know, has been facing a bunch of red tape when it comes to how vaccines will be purchased and distributed. And I think that's been holding back vaccine distribution in the EU a lot. And I would just like to echo the the sort of proposals put forward by the leader of the Greek opposition party, Syriza Alexis Tsipras, uh, earlier last week. Uh, which were to demand the council and uh, the the council of ministers and more importantly the commission to uh, push for a release of the COVID-19 vaccine um, patent so that domestic producers can produce it at a much higher rate because it the production facilities are available uh, in most member state countries to produce a vaccine only if the patent was uh, released. Uh, however, the Commission won't budge on that, protecting um, intellectual property laws inside the uh, EU. Uh, however, the WHO recently said that it does align itself with uh, sort of Cyprus's uh, proposal uh, to release the patent. And uh, the Director General in a phone call said that uh, it is one of the things that the WHO is looking to do or to push for. Uh, but the Commission, again, will not budge on this. If a patent can be released for the uh, for the COVID-19 vaccine, I think that would speed up vaccination massively across the European Union. And we wouldn't really be facing these production issues or these spats with uh, non-member states. Uh, and I think it would solve a great deal of problems. Well, I mean, it's interesting you raise the point of patents because um, the UK have, or believe through AstraZeneca, already released patents to developing country to be able to produce versions of the AstraZeneca vaccine. I believe that's being conducted at the moment in India. And again, that's a lot of that is a plan to export vaccines across the world, which we were talking about last week. Um, the EU have, it's fair to say, been under a lot of criticism for their actions. And I guess it's really that point of hypocrisy. And there was a very interesting summary on the BBC um, a couple of days ago that really emphasised this point that the EU's language and its rhetoric really it wasn't reflected in its actions, both in its discussions, its rhetoric regarding vaccine nationalism, but also linked to the recent Brexit protocol and trade being conducted through there. So, Johnny, you mentioned earlier um, the Brexit argument in all this. I mean, there's a lot of politicians in Europe who look at their vaccine programme and one of them, I'm talking to Bild um, last week in the German newspaper, said, you know, it's embarrassing what's going on here in the EU, especially when you look at the tiny island that just left us. Yeah, well, well definitely. I, I think, firstly, yeah, the European Union has really shown their colours. You know, their, uh, you know had, had their imperial connotations have been, you know, clearly seen. The fact they didn't even uh you know notify the irish government is really interesting and it shows that it is it is what it is a very centralized uh, state and the decision making isn't from the bottom up it's just you know demanded from the top down uh one thing which as you know a great love of the union uh, the union of the great britain and northern ireland that is uh i found it quite upsetting actually that the european union would hold up the possibility of signing a, a, a Brexit deal, you know, two, three years over this issue of a border on the island of Ireland. But then I think it's, you know, 24 days 
after the full uh, withdrawal from the European Union, they effectively were very, very happy to impose a hard border on the island of Ireland, which really tells you, really tells you something. Well, that point of the hard border is particularly um, apt. And I guess one thing you could really kind of draw from that was when the decision was announced to trigger Article 16, not only did were leavers and remainers against the decision, but you had a situation where the DUP and Sinn Féin, two parties on the complete opposite side of the argument in Northern Ireland over um, the Union and, and Irish nationalism, were both against the decision. And many people summed it up as that for the EU to have done that was quite extraordinary. But we've seen um, potential fallout from this already. We saw yesterday that um, border guards um, on the Irish seaports in Northern Ireland were withdrawn over fears of their safety. A lot of this being seen to cut, derive from the decision taken by the EU on Friday. I mean, Odysseus, do you think that the Northern Ireland protocol has been significantly damaged now? By the EU's uh, actions, I would say it's been significantly damaged. I think this was a really strange uh, policy decision for the Commission to to sort of take out of the blue and to trigger that article, but now to do a full U-turn on it and to rescind their decision. I think they realised their mistake, but I don't think that this decision points to any existential issues uh, between the UK and the EU. I mean, if there are any existential issues, they've, they've existed before, uh, you know, the idea of the Northern Ireland Protocol right now. Um, so I don't think that we should blow this out of proportion. But I will admit it, it's quite strange to see the EU act uh, in, in such a sort of direct way and to uh, almost contradict their own policy. And I think it was just uh, the, them losing their temper almost. Well, I mean, that's certainly one perspective on that, but certainly... A lot of um, a lot of unionist politicians in Northern Ireland, we've seen the DUP have now come out and said we need to review the protocol. And I mean, do you think there is disuse now? I feel we're going, we're going back to obviously withdrawal of the border guards now in Northern Ireland because of the EU's decision that effectively they've shown the, the border to be something they emphasise so much during the negotiations something that is almost negligible to them now and kind of leaves in potentially breeds instability. Well, if, if I sort of may counter that point, I think the, the border issue is far more important for the UK uh, and, and Ireland, less so between the UK and Europe. The Good Friday Agreement uh, is solved or sought to solve an issue that was essentially the UK's issue. Uh, and I think that uh, the emphasis that the EU placed uh, on the border issue during the negotiation period was really for the UK's sake. I mean, they did not want another basically war breaking out on the Irish border, which is an EU border after all. So, and I want to reemphasize the point that I don't think that this crisis poses an existential threat to the Northern Ireland protocol. And I think that things will continue as normal. And you hear conservative MPs, you hear Michael Gove talk about this uh, a couple of days ago, and he didn't seem that uh, bothered by it. He said he talks to his partners in Europe and he said that they've realized the mistake they've made and things are going to go back sort of to where they were before the EU made this rather strange policy decision. Okay, Johnny, um, I guess really just same question to you. Do you think the Northern Ireland protocol is under threat now? Well, the, first of all, the unionists in Northern Ireland are, are very dogmatic about their love of the union. And, you know, I sympathise with them massively. 
And they did not in Northern Ireland protocol. In fact, they didn't like the withdrawal agreement. In fact, they didn't like the future trade agreement we've just signed. So I think the danger is the European Union have given them all they need to then continue fighting and pushing for this, you know, tearing up of the Northern Ireland protocol and, you know, being very unhappy with its usage. Um, you know, below the surface, there are a few things with where there are some teething problems at the moment over the Northern Ireland Protocol for, for, with steel, for example. And that was before, uh, that was early January, which predated this incident. But I think uh, an existential threat, probably not, because again, these are crazy times. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. But what I would say is the European Union have, you know, let them rub out the hatch there. They've made it clear that if it um, was to, you know, improve uh, the European Union, they were willing to do it. So I guess Arlene Foster will be saying, well, if it's good enough for, for their side to say it, why can't we? Uh, but no, I think it'll, you know, as as um, as states are ready, it'll, you know, blow over. It'll calm down a little bit. This may be very cheeky to ask, but of course, it's been now just over a year since we left the EU, just over a month since we've left the transition period. And there were a lot of people on Twitter on Friday night saying that, you know, the EU basically has now shot themselves in the foot and many Remainers as well as Leavers were coming out openly and saying, look, after tonight, you know, I'm firmly behind the Leave cause now. Now, I know, obviously, we don't want to necessarily bring the Brexit argument back up, but for the sake of this, um, Odysseus, I'm going to come to you first. Do you think Brexit has now been vindicated? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, this is, again, a very strange policy decision by the Commission that they've taken a back pace from and said, OK, that was a mistake. I don't see how this one decision can change people's minds so drastically. I mean, because Brexit you know, takes in a whole range of issues and the Northern Ireland Protocol is one of those issues. But I don't think that this necessarily uh, will reveal whether the choice back in 2016 was the right or the wrong choice. But does it not speak to a larger aspect that many people in the UK were just concerned with EU regulation and they felt that its centralised nature was not working in their favour? And of course, if you look at the speed of the UK vaccination rollout, you know, we just hit 10 million vaccines, well, you know, nearly an eighth of the population. The UK's barely near that. The EU, sorry, is even better. Yeah, well, the, even if the UK were members of the EU, the, the UK could simply refuse to uh, to undergo any protocol that the EU would say towards vaccination. So even if Brexit never happened, the UK could still be in the same position that it will be. There's nothing saying that you cannot vaccinate the way that you want to vaccinate. The EU makes recommendations, but the UK can veto it, as they vetoed budgets in the past under David Cameron, and they could have that. I don't think this has the slightest to do with Brexit. And I don't think that whether the UK was in the EU or, or in the current position that it is now, it couldn't be just as successful as it is when it comes to vaccinations. Okay, Johnny, what's your response to Odysseus? Why hasn't a single other nation in Europe then opted out of the scheme? I think if, if Britain was part of the European Union, there'd be in exactly the same vaccination scheme and exactly the same position. I think every second of every day, uh, you know, validates Brexit every second i'd say that even if there was no pandemic but uh i think the european union have made it clear they they don't care about individual nation states you know their treatment of greece over the last couple of decades has been abysmal their treatment mm -hmm. of the uk has been horrific so i think actually 
you know, this is just exemplified the the European Union project, which isn't, you know, merely an economic block. It's a desire to get rid of the nation states. And I think, you know, too right, too right that that this uh, debacle has shown that, you know, hell, it's good to do things as a nation state. You know, Britain's in so much better of a state now than if it wasn't in the than if it was in the European Union. We wouldn't be anywhere near where we are with vaccines. I think as well it's shown that there's many pros for being self-sufficient. There are many, many pros. Before this, there was not a single vaccination factory in the UK before COVID. And you know, I'm not going to question that. It wouldn't be on the top of things I would predict. But now we've got, you know, half a dozen to a dozen. It's great to be this self-sustaining country. And every second of every day, Brexit is validated. And this has clearly shown a massive benefit of being self-sufficient as a nation. Well, we could go on about this all day. I mean, there's so much to really unpack. And it'll be interesting to see how this and indeed the, the Brexit justification argument develops over the next few days, months, probably years as well. Um, we'll be back shortly talking about misinformation and COVID. A lot of that has been in the news recently. But first, this. Looking for a bite to eat at the Warwick SU? Daily specials and fine dining experience at the brand new Canopy. Karaoke, pub grub and lager on top of the Dirty Duck. Salad and sarnies to go in the bread oven. Or a latte link up at Curiosity. There's something to suit any taste and any budget. And if you've got a big night ahead of the copper room, start it right at Tea Bar. With speciality cocktails. Best stock prices. And our expertly stocked bar overlooking the piazza. At Warwick SU Outlets, there's something to satisfy every taste. Your breakfast, the feel-good way to start your day. This is Breakfast Radio for Warwick students, by Warwick students. Playing the feel-good hits and brightening up your morning. Plus, we have the best gaps, games and giveaways to freshen up your stagecoach commute. Listen to Raw Breakfast every day from 8am. Your student radio station on 12.51am. This is your Raw. Not going to lie, I would like to delete the last year. If I can just go back to a time when there was no coronavirus, go back to a time where I could go wherever I want with whomever I like, you know, simpler, simpler days, which we'll hopefully come back to in some time. But perhaps something that may not allow us to come back to these simple days is uh, misinformation. And there's been a lot of misinformation um, around um, obviously coronavirus and, and the anti-vax movement. It's something that's been discussed quite a lot throughout the pandemic. And now we're very much at this crucial stage where people are getting vaccinated, it's more important than ever to sort of discuss misinformation and how we can tackle it. And it really sort of came to me last week when, I don't know if any, either of you guys saw this, but there was a video that came out from a hospital, um, I think somewhere in Surrey. And this family came in, this old older gentleman, I think sort of in his 70s, 80s, was being treated in a ward for COVID. And his family came in and basically sort of started trying to take him out of the hospital, removing his oxygen mask, trying to walk him out. The family were sort of all, again, in masks, no PPE at all. The doctors, to their credit, did their best and indeed managed to keep him in. And the family were coming up with all of these treatments that they had found on the internet, like vitamin C, vitamin D and zinc, which had all been disproven with no evidence to support that they treat COVID. They were trying to take him off oxygen as well. And the doctor put it rather bluntly, that if they take him off oxygen, he will be dead within 30 minutes. That was how serious this was. And the thing is, that information, if this misinformation 
you know, really has the potential to kill. And so it's more important than ever that we really tackle this misinformation, but also we tackle it in the right way as well. And people have been talking in recent weeks about potentially criminal sanctions against those spreading um, COVID and anti-vax misinformation. I mean, there's a lot that we could unpack here. So, Johnny, I mean, looking at misinformation, I mean, we've seen a lot of it throughout the pandemic. And I guess that there's a difference, perhaps, between scepticism and misinformation. But ultimately, you want to try and convince people who are sceptic of things like vaccines to take them. Um, how how do you think we should combat misinformation? Because there is obviously a hard, difficult line to draw with things like liberties as well. Yeah, it's, it, it's actually an impossible uh, line to draw because, you know, who determines what's truth? You know, it's very hard. Uh, firstly, I'd say it, it is good to question everything, you know, instinctively. It's good to question things. It's good to not, you know, uh, be one of the sheep and go along with things. But I, I would say that the approach the world's having in the UK and USA has been very good in the sense of, you know, getting uh, high up politicians, celebrities, uh, getting vaccinated to, you know, show that this vaccine is going to be really good and really helping us. So there are certain ways of, you know, traveling down the path of making a positive case for things like vaccines. But it, it's very hard to draw a line on, you know, what is fake news. Uh, you know, we looked, I'm, I'm sure we'll discuss it. You looked at, uh, we, we've been seeing the US election, for example. Uh, there's been huge amounts of, you know, heated tensions as a result of uh, an alleged, you know, voter fraud. So it, it, it's very hard to, uh, to draw the line. And that's always going to be the case. Well, indeed. I mean, let's just take one example that has come out in the last couple of days here in the UK of misinformation with regards to the vaccine. So Jeremy Corbyn's brother, um, Piers Corbyn, a known anti-lockdown campaigner throughout the pandemic, posted letters through to um, residents in Southwark, um, which effectively compared the vaccine rollout to Auschwitz. You know, an absolutely horrific um, leaflet that he was posting through. And on the leaflet as well, he was, um, again, many claims were made about the vaccines on these leaflets, um, including the fact that there had been no previous treatment um, for using this particular type of vaccine. And this was particularly in an area of the country where there has been more suspicion towards vaccines. Indeed, Southwark is an area with higher black and minority ethnic communities. And these groups have been seen to have been more sceptical of taking the vaccine. I mean, Odysseus, when you look at this, do, do you think there should almost be some form of action whether that is criminal, whether that is some form of civil prosecution, what, what sort of action do we need to take? Or is it too harsh to um, go for some form of legal action like that? Well, I just heard about this uh, thing with Jeremy Corbyn's brother. That is really shocking. Um, so, I mean, thanks, first of all, for letting me know. Uh, I'm going to have to look into that. When it comes to criminal punishment, I think there's a very sort of a thin line between punishing misinformation that hurts the general health of the public. And there's a legal case to be made here that by spreading misinformation, you are by extension hurting the general health of the, of the public, which is one point, but then there's the issue of freedom of speech. You know, you have the freedom of speech to say anything pretty much as long as it doesn't really incite violence or racial hatred or things of that sort of nature. 
Um, I think that uh, criminally prosecuting people who on Facebook share uh, misinformation around vaccines or treatment of COVID or of COVID itself, I think that's a, a step too far. But I think that these uh, companies that enable uh, that sort of sharing of misinformation should be taken uh, by the hand by the government and said, look, this is really serious. And in this specific case, we cannot have people spreading complete nonsense about a virus that's killing a lot of a, a lot of uh, a lot of the population, you know, and I think that's I think that's quite a serious uh, step for a government and a corporation like Facebook or Twitter to, to take. But I think, uh, nevertheless, that would be uh, important uh, down the line. Uh, but of course, there is the argument against that, say it sets a dangerous legal precedent, you know, for the government to then restrict freedom of speech in the future uh, when it comes to political reasons. But in this specific case of protecting the public health from misinformation, uh, I think the government should take a, a stricter stance uh, and work with uh, social media companies and say, this is not OK. This cannot be disseminated so widely because it hurts the health of the country. Well, no, indeed. And I guess going back to you, Johnny, I mean, the point Odysseus was making was very much feeding um, into, I guess, that argument obviously we've seen with the debates with big tech in recent months about censorship with regards to voter fraud in the US election. I mean, do you think there's a line? Because we've seen it, you know, last week we saw German newspaper Handelsblatt um, sort of make a massive attack on the efficacy of the AstraZeneca vaccine. They say it was only 8% effective in over 65, which was refuted by the scientists involved. Do you think that where something like vaccination, which could potentially be a life or death matter, do you think that there may be a need for harsher regulation? Or do you think it's important as a blanket approach on all issues with regards to freedom of speech? Well, you know, it's far too easy to, uh, you know, put forward the case for more criminalization, more sanctions and more things like this. But inherently, that's not in my DNA. I'm a very, very against the concept of, uh, you know, criminalizing lots of things. I think it's very good for people to question things. But of course, there needs to be, you know, fight fire with fire, you know, have, have a bigger case for why this vaccine is 100% okay. Get more celebrities vaccinated on live TV. There's ways of, you know, challenging uh, misinformation, which doesn't, you know, result in being thrown in a gulag so to speak well i i would like to hope that we don't have gulags in existence at the moment but Odysseus, if i can come to you now i mean there has been something that has been mooted in the uk getting particular people to take a vaccination as a point of trust i mean with all this misinformation around as i mentioned earlier um lower uptake of the vaccine amongst um black minority ethnic communities with here in the uk I mean, do you think something like that is an effective way to tackle misinformation? Or do you think there has to be more solid action, perhaps from government, from these corporations? I think it's a pretty good start if people see that people of public, like public figures take vaccines openly and advocate for them. That's a really good start. And especially for those people to echo the idea that this is a scientific approach, this is safe, and this is a good thing for us and for the health of uh, the people around us. And I think that 
I think probably the government should ask for some stricter sanctions. Now, I don't want this to be taken out of context. I'm not proposing that the government should uh, track people who doubt the vaccine, because, I mean, this is an issue that happened in Turkey in the beginning of this crisis, where journalists were barred from questioning government numbers. And this is where that line becomes particularly uh, difficult to draw. But I think that generally for misinformation about vaccine efficacy, vaccine dangers, there should be some sort of a more wise approach than just say, okay, you can write whatever you want to write. Well, I think that will certainly be, again, a debate I think many people will feed into because we've heard a lot on freedom of speech and big tech in recent months, whether this is just another part of that debate. And we'll be back in the second hour a lot more to talk about, including um, whether tuition fees and accommodation fees should be reduced this year. Across campus, online and on 12.51am. This, this, this is your student radio station. Welcome to the start of the second hour of the Alternative View here on Royal 51am. It's fantastic um, to have your company again. I um, hope you enjoyed your first hour or if you are just tuning in, hope you enjoy our second hour. We have a lot to go through, including talking about um, leader of the opposition or perhaps inverted commas, leader of the opposition bit of a question there. Kistan has come under fire recently for um, perhaps not fulfilling his role as leader of the opposition as effectively as possible. We'll be talking a bit about that, as well as the recent news um, from Hong Kong, the new British National Overseas Passport Holders Visa Scheme. We're talking a little about the impact of that on UK-China tensions. I mean, there is a lot for us to unpack there, but let's start off with our straight outer campus section. Um, this is where we again bring you the latest news and views from campus and it is a big week if you have some views about the way things that are run in work because it is the all student vote um all student vote is taking place um this week um with nine motions um being voted for i'm going to quickly run through each motion very quickly just saw the name of the motion and the brief so the first motion is um on the rent strike the motion asks the su to show support and solidarity for work rent strike and of all, all of its demands. Uh, motion two is to stop the A46 motion. This motion asks the president and the DDO to lobby the provost and director of the states to oppose the construction of the roads on university owned land. Motion three is Warwick SU for a safety net. This motion asks the student officers to support a more comprehensive safety net policy in response to future disruptions, students teaching and learning conditions. Motion four, it's time to combat antisemitism, brackets IHRA definition. This motion asks for the SU to adopt the IHRA anti-Semitism definition in all its forms. Motion five is the SU space motion. This motion asks for the SU to find a permanent liberation space in SUHQ. Motion six supports student sex workers motion. This motion mandates the SU to campaign for the decriminalization of sex work. Motion seven is review into sexual violence resource availability. This motion mandates the Welfare and Campaigns Officer to publicise all resources pertaining to sexual violence on the SU Facebook page and Welcome Week materials. Um, motion eight is increased module feedback for students motion. This motion mandates the Education Officer to lobby the university for summaries of feedback from students after final module marks are awarded. Motion nine is a sexual violence prevention training motion. This motion mandates the officers to lobby the university to impose mandatory education for all students on topics relating to consent, sexual assault, and sexual violence more generally. Those are all nine motions taken, being voted on in the ASV 
this week. Again, the order of the motions, I said there was the order that was posted on Facebook last Friday. You have until this Friday at 12 p.m. to cast your vote on the SU website. Um, obviously, as we now are within the voting periods and technically a sort of perder, as such, we're unable to discuss any of the motions um, in playbook. All we can say is um, vote on the SU website by 12 o'clock on Friday. It's a good way to get your voice heard and express your opinions on the way that Warwick is being run. And let's move on to something else perhaps quickly now, because there has been a lot of debate. Um, obviously, we saw last week that the government announced that the lockdowns would be extended um, across the UK. And we saw with regards to um, teaching that we're expecting now for um, teaching to likely um, go on until online teaching to continue until the end of term. Plus, we expect um, potentially going into, into term three. We don't know what's going to be happening with the lockdown, but it's very much contingent upon the lifting of that. And we have saw in the last week or so that there's been a lot of movement with regards to tuition fees and whether um, tuition fees should be reduced, whether they should be certain measures, for example, the removal of interest. I mean, there's a lot here to discuss because I think a lot of people can say that teaching has perhaps not, well, teaching hasn't been the same this year, clearly, whether of the same quality. It'll be interesting to discuss that with my panel now. So before we go into any sorts of measures that have been sort of in, sort of touched upon in the last few days, um, Johnny, what do you think about just the general premise of tuition fees? this year do you think that there should be a reduction or even if it's partial in the tuition fees that students are paying uh, i mean i think it's uh it, it's a hard you know hard debate to have but i think you know it's unprecedented times and i do think it's unfair you know inherently it's unfair charging such an extortionate fee for for stuff which is you know wholly online um for the most part online so you know i, I whether I think there is a suitable, suitable reduction or a suitable, uh, you know, ending to this uh, question is another thing, and I th I'm very skeptical on that. But I, I do think it's unfair inherently. Okay, Odysseus, what do you think with regards? Because obviously we're not getting what we normally pay nine thousand two hundred fifty pounds. We're not getting what we normally get for that money this year. But do you think that we're getting the same? quality to justify that uh no i don't think we're getting the same sort of quality of education i'm gonna have to sort of echo what jonathan says here that yeah we are being charged a lot of money for something that isn't frankly worth as much as it used to be worth uh i don't know exactly how, how what the right price is for this because it's a very new thing uh, but I have to sympathise and say that, yeah, it's not quite right to be paying nearly £10,000 a year for something that's mostly online. Well, I mean, students have talked a lot about tuition fees. It has really been kind of one of the most principal issues over the last 50, over the last 10 years, really, since they were tripled um, by the coalition government. And of course, many students, you know, have shown support for past four axing tuition fees. It's been voted on in previous ASBs for that position. But I guess there's a particular sort of point to it this year. So let's just quickly discuss some proposals perhaps have come up. So there is a proposal that um, came out yesterday 
and with regards for 15 vice chancellors across the country, um, suggested that the interest that students are paying on tuition fees throughout the pandemic should be waived. Now, at the moment, I believe students pay about 6% interest, I believe, every month on their um, tuition fee loans and their uh, maintenance loans. So, I mean, what do you think to that proposal? Johnny, let's start with you. Firstly, I, I think obviously it would have to be a, a national decision. You know, it, it can't be done uh, case by case. But also the danger of that is, and, and why this is quite a hard, you know, uh, field to play, is that universities have done things differently. Uh, some London universities haven't had uh, online teaching. Uh, sorry, some online, some uh, universities in London haven't had any in-person teaching, even back in term one. Fortunately, at work, we actually had quite a lot of in-person teaching. Um, so actually, I, I think it's unfair to, to suggest one blanket approach. Unfair, but also very hard because, you know, every university has probably had slight differences, slight nuances. So I just think it's very challenging. Un very unfair, but very, very challenging to come up with a um, solution. Yeah, I just need to correct something quickly with regards to what I was just reporting quickly. Um, it's seven vice chancellors across the UK are calling for um, 15 months of interest to be lifted. That's where I got the 15 from. I thought it was yeah. the number of vice chancellors. Mm. I just got to correct that for the records quickly. Um, so the response from the um, university's minister, Michelle Donnellan, when she was doing the media rounds yesterday, um, she was basically saying that... Um, she felt this measure wouldn't support students because it wasn't directly putting the cash perhaps that students would need into their pocket. She's pointed to um, the hardship fund that the government have supplied an extra £50 million on top of £20 million they already provided um, to universities last December to support the most vulnerable students at the moment. And they've also, she's also made the point as well that with regard to tuition fees, this isn't necessarily a matter that the government sets per individual um, institution as Johnny points out each university sets its individual tuition fee the government sets the maximum it's just the case that most universities charge the maximum so Odysseus where, where do you stand on the government's position here do you think the government could be doing more I think the hardship fund is a uh, generally a good thing but uh, on the question of tuition fees I mean the question is are we getting a service essentially, because education is privatized now, are we getting a service uh, worth our money as students? Uh, and I think the answer to that is no, because the conditions of that service have changed over the past year. Um, and as Johnny rightfully points out, different universities in, like put into place different measures. But I think at the end of the day, most of us are still uh, paying £9,500 really for, um, for our education. So I think that there should be a more universal decision to sort of ease us and basically justify what we are paying for. Just a quick question, though. Um, do you know if Stuart Croft signed that letter by any chance? Um, no. So the seven vice chancellors who signed the letter, so it's Professor Anthony Forster from the University of Essex, Professor Francis Corner from Goldsmiths in London, Professor Karen Cox from the University of Kent, Professor Paul Lazel of Royal Holloway, uh, Professor David Richardson from the University of East Anglia, Professor Adam Tickle of um, the University of Sussex, and Professor Robert van der Noort from the University of Reading. So they are the seven vice chancellors. Um, Stuart Croft, as you can see, not on that list, but I'm not sure if it's any Russell Group chancellors. 
of course, the Russell Group have taken a hard line, what, though, throughout this when it comes to um, mitigation. Now, obviously, because it's a matter for all student vote this week, we can't discuss that on here. But returning to the tuition fee debate more generally, because the last Theresa May promised or stated many times that there would be um, some sort of review into the tuition fee system. I think a particular emphasis on interest payments. Obviously, she didn't get the time to implement that review. The current government have been quiet upon that. But we've seen, you know, in Australia, for example, recently, there was a new system introduced by which certain degrees, I think mainly arts and humanities degrees, were paying higher tuition fees than those degrees that were more science and engineering based. I mean, I want to hear my panel's thoughts because, I mean, there's many possible solutions for tuition fees. But in general, do you think tuition fees as a result of this pandemic should be changed in the long run? Do you think that they should adopt perhaps the Australian system? Um, Johnny, what do you think? Well, you know, call me old fashioned, but I think if you're getting something out of something, it should be you who's paying for it. Uh, and, and actually what the tuition fees have done have actually, you know, uh, granted the ability to go to university to huge swathes of working class people. And that's the beauty of it is, you know, often the case that people complaining about tuition fees are do-gooders, uh, children of low middle class uh, parents who, you know, had it quite easy. Uh, being facetious, of course, um, there are, that's not always the case. But if, if you aren't going to pay for your own tuition fees in the long run, someone else is going to. And as we all know, there isn't some, uh, you know, secret magic tr uh, money tree. So I think tuition fees have been great specifically because they've you know, energized and made working class uh, boys and girls be able to go to university. And it's actually great. It's great. It's leveling up. I mean, the point of the magic money tree is one that has been contended by many people in the last few months. Of course, the leveling up, as you mentioned, has been, of course, a big point for the current government. Um, Odysseus, I guess following on from, I guess, my first question, but also... In terms of university after the pandemic, now we don't know if things from this pandemic may be continued, whether things like online seminars, online lectures could become a thing of the future. Do you think that may affect possible reviews into tuition fees? I'd certainly hope they don't become a thing of the future. Uh, I want to see a return to uh, in-person seminars, uh, back to campus life. I think that's when you really get the most out of uh, un the university experience. I think this is quite a limiting way to attend university uh, through a computer. And it might, if it does continue this way, play into a possible debate about tuition fees. But I just generally don't think that there will be, realistically speaking, a reduction in, in tuition fees in the future, uh, especially as uh, former EU students, now international students, will be paying the standard flat rate of international tuition fees, which will agree with it or not, uh, increase uh, revenues that universities receive um, by a great amount. So there's, there's plenty of EU students. But I think that the argument of whether there should be or should not be um, tuition fees, I mean, I think that's essentially a theoretical argument. Is uh, university, is uh, 
learning scholarship a commercial good or service that should be bought and sold or is it something of a sort of a higher status something that you cannot really put a price tag on and i think that varies you know you have uh, perfectly functioning private educational systems uh, in the uk and us and you have other uh, more public nationalized universities that are good as well they produce uh, good scholarship across the world and people don't pay tuition fees i think it has to it has to do with a theoretical perspective about how you view what education really essentially is and the uk has decided for better or for worse that it's a, more of a private good and it should be sold traded exchanged with money and that's a system that works in the uk well i think we are missing perhaps arguably the most important university out of this and that is of course prager u Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, the online University of Prager. You, I think Dennis Prager has uh, been ahead of the game, unfortunately. Um, that's probably the only thing that he's done right. I mean, I, I have to caveat that with I don't actually think pra- Prager used not a you not, not. No, a it's definitely not. <laughs> but I mean, it's you it's YouTube channel does. It's certainly worth a watch. Definitely. But um, we'll be moving on. Now. I'll be talking about. Um, Keir Sama, whether he is fulfilling his duties as leader of the opposition. But first, this. Music. Welcome back to another week of Psychedemics. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Vinny Show. You are listening to Rockstar. I'm backstage Casper. We're starting to get Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. Sports. There's a team spirit going oh. on behind it. You're all rooting for each other. Oh, yeah. Good job. Yeah. The idea of popular films being nominated for Oscars. I just think the style that Marvel has made has just mm. put them like way above. Speech. You must get to the mass and stats building using three different modes of transport. Oh my god, there's a trolley. It's <laughs> really all about like educating, networking, and sharing our stories. I think the SU has a really uh, important role in engaging students with politics. News. Good evening and welcome to the big decision. Ben and Larissa tied. This is your student radio station. This is Raw 1251 AM. Your student radio station on twelve fifty one AM. This is your role. Kissed armor, Captain Hindsight, as um, Boris Johnson has been referring to him in recent weeks. Um, so he's been leader of the opposition since last April. And he's come under a lot of criticism recently, both from those outside of his party, but increasingly from many within his party for not necessarily fulfilling his role as leader of the opposition. A lot of people have pointed to perhaps the more conciliatory tone of opposition that's been adopted by Keir Starmer than with Jeremy Corbyn. But many have criticised this for perhaps not being as tough on the government as it should be. There was a lot of criticism last week after Boris Johnson's visit to Scotland which Nicola Sturgeon said was non-essential travel and heavily criticised him for it. Keir Starmer came out and said he fully supported Boris Johnson's visit in his role as Prime Minister of the UK. And again, there was criticism on social media, criticism from some within his own party of that. But indeed, over the last month, there's start PMQs um, in the new year. Boris Johnson famously remarked that the footballer Marcus Rashford, who of course has been at the forefront of the Free School Meals campaign, was doing a much better job at opposition than Keir Starmer. And indeed, over the last week, we saw Keir Starmer call for a policy that the government have already called for in opening schools first, 
And a lot of criticism really coming at the fact maybe he's not going in hard enough at the government. I mean, I want to hear the opinion of my panel because Jeremy Hunt said at the weekend that Keir Starmer was the biggest threat to the to the Conservative Party and government since Tony Blair. Yet he's coming under all this criticism for potentially being ineffective. So I want to hear what my panel thinks. So Odysseus, let's start off with you this time. Um, where, where, where do you sit on this? Do you think he's being too conciliatory? Do you think he's being effective? Or do you, I mean, what, what do you think? Well, I don't think he's being necessarily too conciliatory. I mean, if you listen to PMQs, he is he does come off as pretty harsh, you know, on the 27th of January, asking the PM why are there so many people dying? I mean, he, well, he is pretty, pretty tough on the PM. Um, but I think to really sort of to dig down into the answer of this, you have to look at uh, Starmer's leadership strategy that he set out when he was first elected leader of the Labour Party early in uh, 2020. And he said that, you know, Labour Party will agree with the government where it believes it should agree, but will disagree when it thinks that it should disagree. And that's a really a, a polar opposite from Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, which just flat out disagreed uh, with the Conservatives over everything. So if if I hear that Keir Starmer is being too conciliatory, uh, even as someone who supports Keir Starmer, I think that that's probably a good thing because it shows that the Labour Party has changed from a party that uh, just criticises everything the Conservative uh, government does. But I just I also see that Sir uh, Keir is pretty tough in the Commons as well um, when he believes he needs to be tough as well, and I think generally the press is ignoring that. Johnny, what what do you make of what Odysseus said there? He said the conciliatory, mm. you know, Keir Starmer being conciliatory is a good thing. And Keir Starmer's always emphasised, you know, he's trying to be constructive towards the government, not necessarily the sort of combative critique that Jeremy Corbyn got at times. I mean, what do you think to that? Well, the, the obvious answer is Keir Starmer wants to win the next election. And it's the same thing with Brexit, same thing in America, same thing in this country. In any election, you're going to have, you know, I, I call it, you know, there's three separate thirds. You're going to have one third who's always going to vote Conservative, one third is always going to vote Labour. And there's that middle group that you need to win over. And, you know, <laughs> the left of the Labour Party, they're still going to vote for him over any Tory. So I, I do think there needs to be a, a slight, you know, careful approach to Keir Starmer because I think actually you know he's playing the game as if he wants to win um what I would say though is it's, it's clear he's an opportunist it's clear he'll say you know the right thing if he thinks it suits him uh so you know only time will tell but I do think he's certainly trying to play the game of winning the next election although I would add that he's doing it quite ineffectively I think at the moment and why do you think then he's doing it ineffectively because I, I I think there's a hollow nature to it all. Uh, firstly, I think it's very, 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 very hard task to win back the sport of red wall voting uh, constituencies who have, you know, left the Labour Party and with Keir Starmer as the shadow Brexit secretary. I think that's a legacy he's not going to be too fond of. Uh, but also, I think there's this this hollow aspect of just the, you know, the way he speaks. Uh, Corbyn, to his credit, spoke his mind. And although that was very crazy, at least he said what he believed. But I think with Starmer, there's this aspect of it which is disingenuous. There's an aspect of it which is sort of fabricated, which I do think can be seen through. OK, Odysseus, what, what, what do you think to that then? Because you, you, you said yourself that you're a supporter of Keir Starmer. Mm. Do you think he comes across at times 
as disingenuous, almost looks like he's trying to win more than perhaps put forward an ideology. Because again, Jeremy Corbyn obviously emphasised that he wanted to win, but was very clear about putting forward, you know, his avowed these socialist principles. Yeah, well, I don't think that a mark of a good opposition leader is their ability to just simply oppose everything and to speak loudly. I think that at times you can criticize Secure for being a bit boring, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that shows a certain sense of responsibility at the job that he has. And I wouldn't see him as necessarily disingenuous either. I just don't think that he his style is suitable to everyone. And that's probably the case with all politicians. If Boris is the example of someone being genuine, I'd rather have someone disingenuous in that sense in Keir Starmer. Well, I think that that is obviously a debate that I think will rage quite a bit. But we, we talk about this whole thing about sort of genuine as sort of the character of a genuine politician, someone who's pushing forward their principles. Because for a lot of people on the left of the Labour Party, you know, they, Jeremy Corbyn was someone who, you know, was very dogmatic in pushing forward his principles, someone who they saw as genuine in, you know, seeking the best for the country and seeing his principles as the best way forward. Indeed, many on the left of the Labour Party have felt disillusioned by Starmer's leadership. A lot of that, of course, has really boiled down to Jeremy Corbyn and his... Mm. Suspend, firstly, his suspension from the Labour Party, then that being reinstated, but Keir Starmer refusing to um, reinstate the whip, party whip for Jeremy Corbyn following his comments at the release of the IA, um, the, the Equality and Human Rights Commission report into um, anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. So, I mean, where do you think this goes? I mean, do you think Jeremy Corbyn needs to bring the left back on side if he's going to be a more effective opposition leader, perhaps have a greater chance of winning the election? Do you think if they're actively working against him, perhaps, or being highly critical of him, that's going to undermine the notion mm. of party unity to voters? Let's start with that. I mean, I think it, it befalls the the left wing of the Labour Party to realise that they cannot win the next elections. They don't have a shot at winning the next elections if they keep going on about Jeremy Corbyn and about these um, very left-wing views that Jeremy Corbyn espoused as leader of the Labour Party. I mean, we already see that Secure is a much more effective leader of the opposition in the sense that he is proposing effective leadership. He's proposing cooperation. He is sort of seeking to unite rather than to divide, which is something that Corbyn did quite well as a leader of the opposition. And I, I believe he he brings a sense of realpolitik to the Labour Party that it was missing uh, when it was sort of drowning in ideological debate within itself and then with the Conservatives. But could you say just on that point of ideological debate, I mean, 2017, the Labour Party gained 30 seats. Admittedly, there were a new, lot of new policies from the Labour Party in 2019 that you could perhaps say were more ideologically dogmatic. But something clearly worked for Jeremy Corbyn to gain 30 seats in, in 2017. Of course, to caveat that, he lost 60 of them in 2019. I mean, what, what, what do you say to that, perhaps? 
Well, I'm not quite sure, but I think that the the allegations of anti-Semitism that really came about after the 2017 elections in full force, as we saw them, played a large role in the 2019 elections and also Brexit. By that point, the Labour Party hadn't really made up its mind about Brexit under Jeremy Corbyn. And as 2019 approached, they still didn't have a concrete, comprehensive approach. And it was very easy for the Conservatives to say, let's just get Brexit done. You know, whatever you think of that policy, it was just a solid, you know, straightforward answer uh, while the Labour Party was busy sort of debating within itself. And it was that very debating on ideological grounds that really led them to lose a lot of seats. I mean, Johnny, what, what do you make of us? Because, of course, we don't exactly know fully what Keir Starmer's policy programme is. And from the, a lot of the statements made by the shallow Chancellor Annalise Dodds, there's a certain departure perhaps towards more fiscal responsibility being emphasised. But certainly a lot of the policies that Keir Starmer supports, things like rail nationalisation, high levels of NHS spending, he shares with Jeremy Corbyn. So in that sense, why is there this divide emerging between Starmer and the left of the Labour Party? And how much do you think this is going to undermine the party going forward? Well, you know, the most successful Labour leader of our time, certainly in argument history, was obviously Tony Blair. So as we just, you know, sort of discussed, at the end of the day, if, if for Labour to win an next election, they need to govern from the centre or at least appear to. Uh, I think there's an aspect of it which, you know, during election times, most parties do, is that they all veer to the centre to get elected and then their true ideological beliefs uh, come through when they're in government. Uh, but I, I think, to, to put it bluntly, the far left in Labour are not going to be happy with any leader. I'm sure there are aspects of Corbyn where they were not happy about. Uh, so I, I think Keir Starmer may have just, you know, you know, just accepted this, may have accepted this and, and doing the things like sacking Rebecca Long-Bailey uh, from the ca- shadow cabinet and uh, taking rid of getting rid of Corbyn from the party officially. I think it's a very, very you know, sound move if you are a, a force to win the next election. But um, I think he's worked out there needs to be some antagonising of the, the Labour left if he wants to even control the party in the first place. It, there's, there's echoes of um, Neil Kinnock, certainly in his first With four militant, years of yeah, his leadership definitely. and Neil Kinnock and militant. I don't know if there will be a speech like that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I know there are many people who know that Neil Kinnock speech off by heart, which I think is very impressive indeed. Um, just one last thing. Um, obviously, we talk about the next election. Now, I think one of the things the last year has shown is is quite a difficult and dangerous act to make predictions. But thinking ahead to 2024, because we've seen polling recently that suggests that um, that the Tories, there was a YouGov poll that came out last week, that put the Tories ahead of Labour by three points, having been down on Labour one point in the previous week's poll. We're seeing... Um, some goodwill coming from the vaccine programme. And there's been a lot of people suggesting that this, the goodwill from the vaccine programme could help the government regain a lot of the support that they had before the pandemic. Um, Looking ahead to 2024, perhaps, maybe not a prediction on how you think it's going to go, but if Labour are to get themselves into a position where they could be back in government, 
what does Keir Starmer have to do? So, Odysseus, let's start off with you. Um, well, I'm not really sure exactly what the issues that Keir Starmer will face in, in the future as the next election rolls along uh, will have to be. But I think clearly the main issue facing the Labour Party is an internal issue of how to sort of gain a new, more centre-left image rather than just very left-wing. But as for predictions as who will win the next elections, I, I have no clue. I mean... I mean, you are you were about to engage in the dangerous act of predicting that I think oh, we no. have learned over the last year. Oh, no, that's a it's horrible just... mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny, I mean, certainly thinking about 2024, I mean, the impact of the COVID pandemic, you imagine would be on the table, especially with the inquiry that we expect will go on throughout the next few years. Brexit is an issue that could come on the table. Of course, there are some Labour politicians who want to rejoin the EU. I mean... What do you think Keir Starmer has to do now to position himself to be in government when he comes to that election in three years' time? And perhaps as an aside to that, looking um, to the um, local elections this year and the um, Parliament, the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly elections, is there anything that Starmer can do with regards to those? Well, well, firstly, I've got you know quite a dogged view on Labour's possibility of winning a next election and simply that is without Scotland it's not going to happen and essentially you know Scotland used to be 30 40 seats you know in the bank for the Labour Party so I think some somewhere or another he's got to as you know in 2017 Labour added half a dozen to a dozen seats in Labour in Scotland so I think he's got to firstly really consolidate uh, a big voter base in Scotland. Also in, in Wales, we saw in this last election, the Conservatives uh, gained a huge amount of seats in Wales. Um, I think, though, at the end of the day, he's just going to have to promise spending. Because when you're the opposition party, you have that ability. And I think you will see that, especially leading up to another ele- uh, leading up to next election, there will be more promises on spending on the NHS, etc., etc., even if it's just to keep uh, the base happy. Um, but if I were to predict, I think it's very, very hard to overturn a majority like this straight away. I, if I, truth be told, I think there uh, will be a, a, a smaller majority for the Conservatives, but I still think there will be a Conservative victory at the next general election. Well, I think the answer perhaps there from, for Keir Starmer is to get the watering can and start watering that magic money tree. Perhaps your suggestion there, Johnny. But again, <laughs> there's, there's, I think, quite a lot that will obviously happen over the next years, of course, you mentioned um, the SNP in Scotland for a second. That is something we will be coming on to. There's a lot of interesting developments coming up in the next week with the SNP. So it'll be very interesting to see how that goes. But we will be moving on very shortly to talk about Hong Kong. But um, sadly, Odysseus has got to um, leave us now. So um, thanks very much for joining us on the show today, Odysseus. Thank you, Cam. It's been a real pleasure. No, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on. Um, Johnny will be sticking around. We'll be talking about um, the new British National Overseas Passport Visa Scheme in Hong Kong. But first, this. 
Looking for a bite to eat at the Warwick SU? Daily specials and fine dining experience at the brand new Canopy. Karaoke, pub grub and lager on tap at the Dirty Duck. Salad and sarnies to go in the bread oven. Or a latte link up at Curiosity. There's something to suit any taste and any budget. And if you've got a big night ahead of the copper room, start it right at Tea Bar. With speciality cocktails. Best stock prices. And our expertly stock bar overlooking the piazza. At Warwick SU Outlets, there's something to satisfy every taste. Your breakfast, the feel-good way to start your day. This is Breakfast Radio for Warwick students, by Warwick students. Playing the feel-good hits and brightening up your morning. Plus, we have the best gaps, games and giveaways to freshen up your stagecoach commute. Listen to Raw Breakfast every day from 8am. Your student radio station on 12.51am. This is your Raw. We are talking about um, Hong Kong. now. Last week, the government um, have now introduced their policy of um, giving the eligibility for um, three million Hong Kongers who are holders of British national overseas passports to get a new visa, which will allow them to settle in the UK, to work in the UK and potentially get a path to British citizenship. Now, um, this was announced um, last July following the imposition of the national security law in China, which received significant protest the year of course after pro-democracy movements in Hong Kong there to continuous protests throughout the summer in 2019 we saw the imposition of the law in the national security law in 2020 which effectively mandated a lot of similar um, procedures on matters like freedom of speech and freedom of expression on mainland China to those in Hong Kong this was seen as a violation on the joint declaration that was signed between the UK and China in 1984 and governed a lot of the relationship um, between um, Hong Kong and China, seen to govern it up to 2047. The UK have said that China violated this. And so it's now led to the situ- this new visa scheme allowing um, ho- citizens in Hong Kong with British national overseas passports to emigrate to the UK and eventually have a pass to British citizenship. Um, China have reacted against this. They have said that all holders of British national overseas passports are now no longer able to travel to China using these documents. And more importantly, um, they've again emphasised that Britain is breaking its side of the joint declaration and very much trying to emphasise it as the bad party here. A lot to discuss. Johnny, let's start off with you. I mean, this is a scheme that will clearly have quite an impact, not just in Hong Kong, in China, but also here in the UK. I mean, what's your first reactions to this scheme being implemented? Well, it's a very, very good thing. You know, uh, Hong Kong and Britain, you know, um, certainly go hand in hand. There's a past history, past relationship, past friendship. And I think whilst the Chinese are are clamping down on individual liberties and freedoms, which Hong Kong had uh, previously enjoyed, I think it's great. It's what what a great thing. We're saying, well, if the Chinese are going to clamp down on your uh, on your freedom and liberty, you can come to Great Britain. Well, no, I think that's really the point that the government have emphasised. They emphasised really a duty that they have to Hong Kong, given the Sino-British joint declaration, but also, as they said, the guarantee that some form of democratic system of government and principles will remain in Hong Kong until 2047. Now, the British government have said this has been um, violated, but Hong Kong is... Chinese now it's under Chinese control do Britain really have the right to do this on this 
on a matter that is really a, effectively you could argue a domestic matter for the Chinese. I think again uh, the declarations signed and the agreements previously agreed have got to be kept kept to really. Uh, I think this brings in a wider issue of why the all of a sudden the Chinese are reneging on their treaty, uh, you know, declarations. But you know that's signed into international law. Now one might say what's international law, but uh, if you've agreed something, both parties have to agree to it. So I think you know the British are well in their right uh, to say, well, if the Chinese are going to renege on their commitments, we're going to enforce our commitments. And look after the uh, the native Honganese. No, definitely, and of course, this is a wider ranging debate. Obviously, UK China relations have taken um, a, a slightly less um, amicable tone over the last year. Um, specifically, now maybe turning to China. Now they have said they're no longer recognising um, the passport holders of um, Hong Kong citizens holding these British national overseas passports. I mean, do you, do, I mean, China surely are well within their right to be able to do this. Well, what, what I would say is the reason they entertained the concept of Hong Kong having increased you know, liberties and rights and democracy was that Hong Kong used to be this, or still is to this day, a great financial hub and brought in so many, uh, so much good to China. But now you you have rival financial hubs like uh, Guangzhou, Shanghai, and Beijing itself, which are now surpassing Hong Kong. So from the Chinese, you know, CCP perspective, it makes sense. Why allow a part of your country to have the freedom it had just because uh, it had like an economic advantage? When now there are cities which are overtaking that. Uh, so from a Chinese perspective, it makes sense. And at the end of the day, Hong Kong is. Chinese territory, but there's no reason why people who don't want to live in Hong Kong anymore, why they can't you know, migrate to Britain. You know, these people have been living in Hong Kong for a long time. Their families have been living in Hong Kong for generations. It's not a, you know, it's not just something simply done. If someone's going to move from their homeland all across the other side of the world, it really tells you how bad the situation is getting in Hong Kong. There's an argument that has been raised by some that obviously we've seen the UK tighten up its immigration laws at the start of the year with this new points-based immigration system, but that some have argued that this system with Hong Kong effectively sort of undermines the whole aspect of greater control over immigration, where we're effectively allowing for these people to get visas, come over to the UK and settle in the UK, and all the concerns that people had with immigration, for example, increased pressure on public services and that motivated people to vote for Brexit is effectively being undermined by this. Now, obviously, as you've mentioned, the duty that Britain has to Hong Kong, and obviously we've seen the, the, the alleged repression coming from the national security law within Hong Kong. And what, what, do you, what do you make of that? Do you think there's some legitimacy to that argument? Well, you know, the difference I'd say is, is Hong Kong culturally is very British. I've been fortunate enough to be there myself. And I was shocked to see on a narrow side street that they have Mr. Swim, uh, Mr. Sims old sweet shops. They have uh, Marks and Spencers. They have all these, you know, inherently British shops. And, and that is the culture. So I, I do think there's a slight difference because, you know, I see 
great similarity with some of these uh, Hong Kong citizens who benefited from British culture. Um, and, and that is what I would say. And actually an aspect of my Euroscepticism and my advocacy for Brexit was that I wanted closer links with the Commonwealth. I wanted closer link with Caribbean countries and other countries around the world, which you know share our, our great British culture, our judicial systems, our freedom, our liberties. Well, indeed. And of course, Hong Kong, again, within the joint declaration, that point was very much emphasised in what the British government said as well, because of these in being increasingly repressed by China. That's why we've taken the action now. Um, tensions between the UK and China have worsened um, in the last few years, particularly in 2020. We saw at the start of the year, um, the, we had the U-turn on Huawei being involved in 5G. We've seen increased criticism over um, the Uyghur Muslim um, genocide taking place in um, Xinjiang within China. And now, of course, we've had the flare-up tensions over Hong Kong. Um, where do you see the future of UK-China relations going? Unfortunately, I'm rather pessimistic on this, actually. Um, I think we have now entered, uh, especially, ironically, unknowingly, for a decade or so, I think we've entered a new sort of global Cold War. And I do think this is going to play out. And over the next few years, decades, it's all, there'll be increased tensions and increased disagreements. Um, I, I don't think it's necessarily good. I think Huawei uh, was just a, you know, was just a mere scratch to the problems what, is, what are going to come about. And I think the Chinese are positioning themselves where it's either or, it's not together. And they're trying to rival US uh, hegemony. So um, I, I, I'm quite worried, actually. Truth be told, I am worried. And I think this, yeah, the cracks are emerging, most doubtedly. And these cracks can't just be plastered over overnight. So do you think this almost has echoes of the sort of great power competition of the Cold War? Yeah, but most definitely. But it, it, it's dangerous, more so because, uh, you know, when we looked at something like World War One, you had actually a handful of nations who all uh, exhibited a large degree of power. At the moment, you're essentially having the U.S., uh, coming up against uh, the Chinese coming against the US and you know as, as the world shows something has to give as history shows sorry something has to give it's very 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 rare that a world has been able to live with just two powers two big powers well I think that's certainly something we'll continue to look at and just one last question very quickly do you think the, the Biden administration do you think that will have a particular impact upon the UK's approach to China upon relations more generally well during the presidential election, you heard all about the, the links with Hunter Biden and, and the Chinese. And I, I can tell you for sure that there are some worrying links between the Biden administration and the CCP in China. Uh, and uh, there always have been. Uh, and I think people have misread China. And I think now it's going to increasingly uh, be, be you know, on the news that there is increased tensions. Uh, although I do think the... Um, you know, the military industrial complex, whatever you want to call it in America, are quite against the concept of losing their global, uh, you know, dominance to China. And regardless of who is in the White House, whether it's Biden, Trump or anyone, these tensions are just going to keep rising. Jonathan Hoyle, thanks very much for coming on the show today. It's been great to be on. And it's been great to have you listening as well. Thank you so much for listening to us over the last two hours. I really hope you tune in again, same time next week at three o'clock on Wednesday here on Raw 1251 AM. Across campus, online and on 1251 AM.
This, this, this is your student radio station. 